first thing I want to talk about is your backgrounds. What led you here, school, interests, the other careers you chose? How did you get where you are today as the Gilmore guys? Do you want to take that, Demi? <laughs> sure. Um, for me, I would say that a lot of my interest in comedy led me to doing this. Um, I think that most of my interest in doing this sort of show was just realizing that it was it didn't really have any rules. And so doing a show like this with Kevin meant that we could do something that combines interest in pop culture and television and generally just watching TV and sort of making commentary on it that I had loved seeing other people do. And so I figured doing it myself would also be pretty exciting and fun. Um, and I, I mean, I went to school for film. I now work in that industry. It's sort of something that's enveloped my life. It's just a thing I've always loved. So talking about it for three hours a week didn't seem like too much of a stretch. Yeah, we both love comedy. We both love podcasts leading up to this. And it was just a natural extension of playing in that world. And, and we had never uh, done a podcast ourselves. We had guessed it on a few here and there, but none. That was just completely our own. So teaming up for it seemed like a really good idea. What else do you guys do? Or is that a secret? So a secret, I, I work, um, in addition to doing the podcast, I work as an editor in L.A. Oh, uh, I'm a TV writer. Your fans all know this, but for people who are new to you guys, can you give me the just cliff notes on how you specifically started doing the Gilmore Guys podcast? How we started doing it? Yes. Like Yeah, so I grew up really loving the show uh, ever since I was a kid. It was always one of my favorite shows. And when I saw it was coming on Netflix a couple of years ago, I thought it'd be fun to revisit it in a podcast setting. So I kind of tweeted and posted on my Facebook, half kidding, half not. Oh, I want to start a podcast called Gilmore Guys. Who wants to do it with me, like co-host or be a guest? Just kind of like joking, also kind of not joking. But then Demi responded, and I was like, well, Demi's awesome and hilarious, and I'm a big fan of his. So... So then we got together, and we had been, you know, friends before, but then we got together and kind of had a lunch about it and just talked about the actual viability of doing it and whether it would be fun, whether it wouldn't be fun, and just, like, all the realities of it. And uh, not not anything like, okay, so phase one, we start small. Phase two, we start touring the country. <laughs> phase three, like, that was never on the agenda or table, but just – you know, seeing what it would take to make a show like this and how fun it could be. And then after that lunch conversation, we recorded our first episode and a couple of days after that. And then we put out our first episode on October the 1st, right when, right when it came on Netflix. Why do you think people are so drawn to your podcast and to Gilmore Girls? Well, I think actually there might be the similar strands of appeal with the podcast and with the TV show is a function of the medium. A function of the medium of podcasting is that it's very casual, very intimate in that it's hanging. It, it feels like hanging out like most of the best podcasts do. You forget that it's people talking in front of microphones and you just kind of enter into this context in your mind where it's just like, you're talking with people, you're talking with friends, or overhearing a conversation someone's having at the table next to you, et cetera. So I think people respond to that, and we really try to capture that tone on the show. And then conversely on the TV show, I think people just love hanging out with those characters. 
Gilmore Girls isn't a really plot-driven show at all. The the story, the appeal of Gilmore Girls is never, I wonder what's going to happen next. How's Lorelai going to get out of this one? It's always about the character driving the story first. So I think in that sense, we're both kind of, we function as comforts. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's saying too much for our show, but like we function in a, in a casual sense. Like we're not going to put you on edge or stress you out in the way like, you know, a show like Breaking Bad would. And same with Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls is a very pleasant, lovely, warm, comforting blanket of a TV show. That's very interesting. When I was putting together questions, it was weird because since I've listened to all of your shows, I was like, oh, I feel like I know them. They don't know who I am. They don't know who any of the listeners are. But like a cool point is that you feel so connected to the people that are podcasting. Yeah, and I think that's very common. I think there's even, uh, I think the term for that, if I'm not mistaken, is a parasocial relationship. Which is the idea that, you know, it, it's a one-sided relationship. It's pretty much a fancy term for a one-sided relationship where you feel like you know a person even if, if they're not as familiar with you. And, you know, a part of you isn't wrong. Like you do, and people who listen to podcasts do know that part of that person. Mm-hmm. You know, even though they don't know the whole person, they do know that part of that person. So it's kind of true at the same time. You guys are part of the HeadGum Podcasting Network, and many of your guests have their own podcasts. Describe this growing podcasting community, because I think in the past, I don't know, what, like six or seven years, it's exploded. Yeah, so in L.A. in particular, there's a few, you know, fragments of it. And I would say in New York as well, like there's different fragments of it. And it's kind of like any other community where there's, certain groups and certain cliques and there's the certain people and groups of friends that work and hang out with each other over and over again. Uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the rise of the legitimacy of podcasting. There's been a few ways, you know, like Mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, Mark Maron starts WTF in his garage and then that show becomes a huge hit. And then almost like when Dane Cook for, you know, when he became really popular as a stand-up, then that was just good news for all stand-ups. It's just like a rising tide thing. So it's the same thing with podcasts. And so, you know, so there is a wave with that. And then there was just like this rise of this really exciting time in L.A. and New York. But for us, we're more familiar with L.A. specifically, where people in comedy, stand-ups, improvisers, were just starting to do their own stuff and put out their own thing. Guys like Scott Ackerman and Jimmy Pardo and Chris Hardwick were just, okay, I'm not going to wait on X network to give me this much space. I'm just going to do it and make it myself. And so that started happening more and more. And then it just has kept rising in legitimacy with networks like Nerdist or Earwolf or when Mark Marin has the president in his garage for WTF or when there's these huge kind of blockbuster cultural moments like, Serial season one hitting, and then everyone's just, you know, becoming introduced to the idea of podcasting because of that one show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's like, it comes in waves. I think it's just going to keep growing and growing in legitimacy, even to the point now where I think it has, where uh, Barack Obama doing it is going to, I think it'll be looked back historically as a big moment for podcasting because. Even the, the, some of the presidential candidates now running in 2016 are doing 
podcasts like that that stop now on the press and media tour. It's media tour. It's not just like 60 minutes to meet the press. Now it's like, oh, Hillary Clinton did an episode of Another Round, which is this very fun and funny podcast mm-hmm. hosted by these two girls on the BuzzFeed network. And that's just part of the game now. So I think that'll just keep growing and increasing in stature like that. Hopefully not to a point where it becomes regulated and then, you know, imposed upon with different things like is the case with a lot of TV shows and even YouTube. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a great time right now where it's popular enough where people can cultivate audiences, but not so popular that big corporations and other, you know, big entities that might be copyright police or content police are getting involved in the mix. It's like in a real sweet spot right now. You've recorded over 200 hours. I, I remember you saying you've recorded more hours of your podcast than hours of Gilmore Girls exist. Now. Yeah, <laughs> correct. Yeah, I I can give you the exact total right now. But oh. Gilmore it's Girls... It's like the 300s now, right? <laughs> well, not quite. I mean, Gilmore Girls, Gilmore Girls was 153 episodes. So, you know, on an average of 42 minutes an episode, it comes out to about 107, 108 hours. So for Gilmore Guys, we have put out, as of recording this, uh, as of talking to you right now, 152 episodes for a total of 235 hours of content. So it's more than double at this point, even with you know the exact same number of episodes, which I guess speaks to the freedom of the medium and the form. You guys are one of the only podcasts that I can actually listen to for three hours. <laughs> Some of them I'm like, eh, this is a little long, but maybe it's just my particular taste. But I always get really <laughs> excited when they're when they're lengthy. Like, yeah, you know, there's different philosophies about that, but I I enjoy lengthy because lengthy shows again kind of add to that casual atmosphere where you can talk for two minutes about something that doesn't have anything to do with the show and then have fun and get into this, like, good creative zone, and then that's forgiven by the next, you know, 90 minutes of talking about nothing but the show. And that way it's comprehensive and it's a way to kind of get, you know, to to serve all purposes and to speak to everyone's particular needs in in listening to the show. Because some people listen to it. Strictly as a Gilmore Girls podcast, they don't really care about anything else. Some people listen to it mostly as a comedy podcast. So there's like different factions within that listenership. So we try to serve all those at the same time. So how much prep goes into each episode for you guys? Well, it depends on if we're doing it in a in a studio context, just recording it, you know, uh, in our studio here in L.A. with a guest or two. Um in, in doing it live, it, the components are roughly the same, but the, the prep work that goes into the live show is probably two or three times more. Because in addition to it, it's we have a very, you know, comparatively bare-bones setup when we record. We don't have an engineer uh, for when we record. So whenever you're hearing us with a guest in the room, those are the only people that are in the room. There's not a third party watching the ones and twos. I'm doing that while recording and, and talking during the show. So with the with the live setups, in addition to, you know, we have a booking agent who books the venue. And then when we do that, we need to hire a video person to video it. 
uh, photographer, merch people, coordinate getting the merch, talk to the venue, blah, 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 and then create videos and then write and, you know, learn and perform music for the shows usually is what we do. So the prep for that is a lot more. For the studio episode, generally the way it goes is we both watch the episode and then because the, there's these different segments we do on the show that are kind of hallmarks of it in a way for people to kind of know what to count on with the show with the regularity, like, okay, then they're going to do session, then they're going to do Q&A, then they're going to do television without pity. The work that goes into that is generally, it takes for me because I'm editing the clips as I'm watching the show. I don't watch the show and then go back and edit it. Mm-hmm. All, it generally takes me like 90 minutes to two hours to watch the show for the first time. And then to edit together the, you know, pop the culture segments and different clips. And then for Demi and I to prepare, like, the different Television Without Pity theme songs. And then gathering the Q&A, putting it on Twitter and Facebook, gathering the questions, reading through all those, going to the Internet archives through a weird portal because the server is actually down for Television Without Pity, but then going to Television Without Pity. And then retrieving all those comments and then cataloging them and getting the best ones and then booking the guests and then setting up the studio because it's not a studio that's freestanding every time we record. We're setting up and tearing down the mics after every session, so it's not something we walk into and walk out of. Mm-hmm. So that's like another hour right there. I'd say all in all for like one episode of the show to prep is probably 15, 10 to 15 hours, depending with all of that. And then the back end of that being recording, which can go anywhere between two and three hours now. And then after that, editing the show, which is listening back to it all the way through. And then recording all the ad spots, taking off the stuff we don't need, mixing it, putting it out, uploading it, and then plugging it on the social media. I'd say it ends up being about 20 to 30 hours per episode. And then, Demi, since you're less familiar with the show because it's your first time watching, do you watch the episodes more than once? Sometimes. A lot of times I only have time to watch the episode once, and I'll just make very extensive notes about it to the point that I couldn't possibly read all of them. Like, I have a lot of notes that are just, like, minute-to-minute bullet points of what I'm thinking at the time. But uh, if I can, I try to watch the episode twice. For 6-11, which we're doing in Minneapolis, I just watched the episode twice, and I'm going to try and watch 6-12 and 6-13 twice before the weekend as well. I was wondering, do you guys have a rough percentage of Dean, Jess, Logan camps, or are there any patterns you've noticed about who's for who? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's definitely predominantly Jess, um, which has just been a whirlwind uh, for us in terms of us really not knowing who we are on team on whose team we're on. So that was very interesting to find out that it's almost unanimously Jess, but then there's the uh, rare team Logan stragglers. And then there's the even rarer team Dean stragglers who are always uh, interesting to hear from and often include the actual cast themselves. So that's pretty crazy. But yeah, it's predominantly Jess. Yeah, you know, I mean, I people have their different. We've heard it from as many from Scott Patterson saying he's the most soul, soulful, to Karina McKenzie saying he's just so tall. So, the 
the defenses are, you know, all over the map. So why do you think people are so dedicated to these characters and these relationships? People go crazy for them. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of it has to do with projecting yourself on the show, kind of in the way the show functions as comfortability and hangout time, like with your old friends, and that's the sensation for a lot of people. Uh, what we hear from, from a lot of listeners after shows and then via email and et cetera is, oh, my mom and I, we're just like Lorelai and Rory. Or, or like you just said, oh, I've totally dated a Dean, I've dated a Jess, I've dated a blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it's a show where, unlike a lot of shows that are, like, more fantastical or removed from our world or high concept, no one says, like, oh, I'm being such a Jacob in Twilight right now or, or what have you. Or, like, oh, God, my, I dated a, a Skyler last time or a Walter White, blah, 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 blah. It's a show where people like projecting on, you know, the show on themselves and then vice versa. I think that's a lot of the appeal is how Jane Essenson talked about this on our podcast. She was one of the writers for the show in season four. And it's a very reflective show. It's a show that seems to reflect a lot of, you know, even though it's fantastical and heightened in its whirlwind dialogue and pop culture references the core relationships of the show are resonant because they're reflective you know even for me i could say oh this relationship with emily and lorelei that reminds me of my mom with my own grandmother blah 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 like there's always Mm -hmm. at least some point of entry for everybody where it oh it's this feels like the real world to me so dummy since you've started watching it so recently do you feel super big connection with the characters just because of this podcast or how do you feel about them? It's funny. Uh, I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but I sometimes feel like I have no connection to a single person on this show. And it's weird because I don't feel any emotional resonance with them. And truth be told, I often think they are horrible people, but I still love watching them. And I am so deeply invested in their choices. And I get like frustrated when characters make bad choices and I get really happy when they make choices that I consider, like, wise and whatnot. So that's been the sort of thing that I don't know how to grasp in that I literally, like, literally six seasons, there's maybe been one storyline that I'm like, oh, oh, there we go. That's me. And then it gets dropped, like, minutes later. But, yeah, it's weird. I think maybe it just has to do with how I grew up not watching the show and uh, watching it in a different time means I see different things and, I'm sort of watching it with the eyes of someone who's grown up on a different cultural landscape of television. What are the most interesting niches of the Gilmore Girls fandom that you guys have come across? I, uh, well, the, I think the most surprising niche is just the one that would actually listen to a podcast about it, truth be told. Like, we just thought it was a fun format. And uh, I, even as someone who is quote-unquote a fan and watcher of the show for so long, I had no idea the kind of, the the enormity of of the fandom that we were tapping into, you know, sort of on accident in doing the show. But as far as niches go, I think, I don't know, and Demi can speak to this too, but, uh, you know, it is, and maybe this is, like, really myopic and ignorant of us to say, but it's it's surprising when, like, you know, guys come to the show 
and they're not there, you know, with, oh, my wife dragged me along or my girlfriend, you know, dragged me. Where it's like guys alone or bros with other bros. We see a few gaggle of bros at Gilmore Guys shows, you know, not often. It's definitely not the the majority, but it does happen sometimes. Uh, I remember a group of bros at our show in Washington, D.C. that came, and that was very fun to see them. But, uh, you know, that's surprising to see. And I think reflective of the staying power and nature of the show, that the show, even though it is niche, that it still has appeal outside of the perceived sort of, like, gender construct of, like, Gilmore Girls. It's for girls. Only girls can watch it. And it's nice to see, I think, too, also people of the older generation not just people who like, oh, you must have been 20 when you were watching the show and now you're 35, but people who are like in their 40s and 50s and 60s and also really young people listening, you know, listening and watching it who discovered it for the first time on Netflix. But as far as the most notable niche within that group, I, I'm not sure. I'm not totally sure. I guess maybe the guys. I don't know. Do you have anything to add, Demi? Uh, in terms of niche groups, I'm not really sure. Uh, I was trying to think of, like, is there anyone who's, like, I'm a bad bat and Kirk Shipper or anything? Um, no, I can't think of too many niche groups. But, yeah, it's always it's always a delight to see how many men are, like, you know, doing the Gilmore Guys thing isn't really niche because there are a ton of Gilmore Guys. And it's, it's not that I'd never thought that. It's just I never thought about that. So it's it's always cool to see you know, how many men get active and involved in the community, too. How intense do your fans get? Do they send you anything weird in the mail? <laughs> no, they, you know, I mean, truthfully, uh, to, the, to answer the first question, very, very intense. <laughs> to answer the second question, no, because we don't give our address out to weirdos. Or, okay, or like <laughs> email. What's the, do you guys get? tweeted strange things you must yes yeah after after i mean after i think a certain size of audience i think it's almost like common or standard to get a certain percentage of like oh i'm uncomfortable what is this but um i it's definitely not the majority at all and people have actually been very lovely about sending us One of the early experiences with us kind of realizing, oh, what what are we doing here, is we mentioned offhand, and I don't even remember the context. We mentioned offhand, like, oh, would love a cross-stitch sent to us in the mail or something like that Mm -hmm. on on the show, on the podcast. And as as of now, we probably have upwards of 20 to 30 cross-stitches that people have sent us in the mail. Of like whether it's the logo for our show or a reference from the show or a quote, people have been very lovely at sending really amazing fan art. There's a woman that came up to us in our live after our live show in Dallas. Actually, the same woman who was proposed to at that show, six oh one, who had who had made us an etch a sketch drawing of Luke's diner because like she specialized in etch a sketch art. And she made one of Luke's diner and froze it and gave it to us. So, so, like, there's this gorgeous little etch-a-sketch piece of Luke's diner, which is so lovely and wonderful. But, yeah, I think any time, and especially with 
TV shows because TV shows really uh, TV shows engender I think a wide breadth of of fandom where it's like casual fans like oh you know I watch it with my mom I love it it's my favorite show you know and people who just kind of check in here and there to people who are really intense about it to people for whom the relationships are akin to like real life relationships to real people to people who write fan fiction about it to people you know to people for whom it's like the most important thing and show in the world and and their life revolves around it like it, it, tapping to, into any sort of fandom i think that's especially true for a lot of tv shows that are like this that engender these kind of really loyal audiences like buffy or you know parks and recreation or you know shows like that where people who love the show love the show and get you know borderline obsessed with it so you know there's a little bit of that we definitely don't see it that much at our live shows our live shows are just overwhelmingly lovely thoughtful sweet wonderful people who who we talk to after the show and and you know come by and say hi so that's that's always super nice to uh, to interact with. Do people ever stop you on the street? Are you guys at that point? <laughs> Do people know what you look like that they bother you? I think bothered. people stop Demi a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your experience is day to day, Demi. But well, I hang but, out in the park with a giant sign that says five dollars for autographs, so that helps. Yeah, that's uh, to do it. And I just hang out. To, yeah, I have a similar sign, but no one ever comes up. Uh, Does he charge $10? (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's my problem. It's an economic problem more than anything else. But, uh, I mean, it's happened sporadically. I know Demi gets a lot of, like, UCC and stuff, right? Yeah. It happens sometimes for me. Uh, It's never weird, so that's lovely. But, yeah, it's happened a few times. I have some rapid-fire Gilmore-specific questions for you guys that people texted me. What is your favorite Gilmore set? I think uh, the one that's most pleasing to the eye would probably be Luke's. And then just in general, Stars Hollow, because it's so... I, I think that actually captures why the show is so sweet to watch, is that it's small, and it's almost like obvious how much of a back lot it is. But you don't mind and you don't care, and that's so much a part of the appeal of the show mm-hmm. anyway. So I always enjoy seeing that set, which is currently up, by the way, at the WB right now uh, for a little bit. They're going to have to turn it into the set of Pretty Little Liars at the end of the month. But Stars Hollow, as you know it from the show, with all the different buildings, with, you know, Andrew's Bookshop and, you know, Taylor's Soda Shop and Luke's, it's all up right now. They should just do a Gilmore PLL crossover. Oh, boy. People would love that. <laughs> Aria and Rory on the town. What about you, Demi? Favorite set? Uh, I, I like the Luke set as well, but I also feel like particular to any time they're at Yale. I don't know why. I really like the Yale sets. Maybe it's because it's outside and I didn't expect it to be a built set, but apparently it is. I like looking at it. Which of Sookie's dishes would you most want to try? You know that uh, that weird jalapeno mac and cheese she made for those children at the beginning of uh, oh, the, season four? I think it might have been like 402 or Lord 3. Lord of the Rings party? Yeah, 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 the Lord of the Rings party. It sounded like some good freaking mac and cheese. I would love to have tried that. 
Yeah, I was going to say Suki's cake in that same episode, which children could not appreciate, but I as a grown man could. Yeah, that's right. Would you or have you thought about attempting to guest on the revival, or do you want to keep that separate from your lives? Well, we weren't going to make this public until next week, but actually what happened was Amy called us up and said, folks, fellas, Lauren and Alexis are sick. Uh, There's no one else that can do this. There's no one else that knows the show like you guys. So we, you know, a la Mrs. Doubtfire, got on our Rory and Lorelai outfits, and we shot for a day as Rory and Lorelai. So you're going to see that in episode three, which is summer. And there's going to be some reverse shots where, like, you know, the heights and the skin colors might look weird. It's all reverse (laughs) shots, so you only see the facts of our heads, but still. So that can be a WGN exclusive that we actually are in the revival as Lorelai and Rory. Wow, thank you. Thank you for that. I can't can't wait to tweet it out. You're so welcome. I wasn't expecting for it to come out this way, but it it just feels right. Our publicist is going to be pissed. Yeah, it's going to be a real bummer. So I know you guys have already gotten the spoiler that Rory goes to work on the Obama campaign, which I thought about the entire time Obama was running. I was like, Rory, oh, yeah. Rory's on yeah, the yeah. intro. Do you think she would have stayed with Obama on the trail or gotten homesick and gone home? What do you think she did after that, after she left? And where would she be now? I think I talked about it a little bit on the reunion cast. And presuming that she does go off to work on the Obama campaign and is with Obama, like when he gets elected, I'm saying maybe she becomes a part of the cabinet staff or some part in office while Obama's there. And then when he leaves office, she also decides to leave. And maybe that's where the series begins. It's her having worked in the White House for eight years and sort of coming back home and deciding that she needs to change some things about her life. And here we are. I don't know. That would be kind of brilliant because it's a built-in timetable that would work out with the timetable of the show. That would be interesting, definitely. All right, let's see. So what were you guys honestly expecting out of this podcast when you began, and how have your lives changed because of it? I was expecting negative feedback and <laughs> and not much <laughs> from it. I mean, sincerely, I was expecting maybe a few hundred people would listen to it in an email or two over the course of doing it in its entirety. And I think we were expecting to maybe be done right about now, like March or April of 2016. Mm -hmm. But it's just changed so much since the show started and then the show's coming back and and all these things. Uh, And I think... The the second part of the question is how how have our lives changed? Mm-hmm. I think they've, you know, and Demi can speak to it too. I think they've both changed for the better, and the show has provided, you know, like career opportunity, like you know, being able to get different jobs and talk with different people and and all that stuff, blah blah blah. But I think the opportunity that's so valuable uh, and wonderful for both of us is to have something that's both ours and and that we both have total control over and learning how to make something we love first and then make something that other people like as well. And just the, just the practice and the kind of 
learning experience of doing live shows on the regular has been invaluable. Like, not everybody gets this opportunity at all to figure out, like, oh, what kind of how, – how do I do on stage? I don't know. You know, it it's been so – and this is like the majority of our performance experience now too is these shows, you know, and you know, we've obviously done a bunch of different things on the side here and there, but I think the, the invaluable experience of being able to go up and do a show and figure out how to host and talk to people and, and talk to an audience and take care of them and, and doing all these things has just been like really invaluable. So I think from the time we started to now, we've probably, we've only been doing live shows for the last 10 months or 11 months, I guess. Our first show was with Jessica St. Clair back in April of last year. Mm-hmm. So even between then and now, I feel like we've progressed. The shows have gotten better and tighter and, and been more things to more people. So, and I think our lives have changed too. And I mean, yeah, I guess, I guess that's as good a way to put it as I can. Demi. Uh, for me, I mean, I don't really have too much different, too many different things to say. I didn't expect a lot going into this. I thought it would sort of stay a hobby for me uh, for a while. And then it sort of blew up and became like a second job, but it's like a really fun job that I don't mind doing. It allows me to travel and it's literally just me talking for as long as I can. So it's a delight. And it's been so wonderful to make friendships both with people in the comedy community and with people who are just fans of Gilmore Girls and reach out and just talk to us. And it's really cool to sort of see a community blossom around us trying to create a community around a different show. And it's such a wonderful experiment and it's been super fun and it's just been like predominantly positive. It's wonderful. Yeah. That's another cool thing too, is the community that's come out of it that already existed for the show. Mm -hmm. But then there's like a group of people who have become friends just through their mutual interest in the podcast and they'll travel together. There's a group that came from, you know, the South and from Brooklyn and they all flew to Dallas to come to that show. And then they've become like friends outside of the show and continued those relationships. And that's very cool to see. Are you, are you really doing bunhead bros for real? Yeah, we got to We got to do okay, bunhead good. bros. Cause I watched all of bunheads on your recommendation and it was wonderful. So yeah, right. Looking forward to that. I was really <laughs> sad that there weren't any more, though. It's gonna be a real bummer. I mean, hopefully, I mean, we don't know exactly what the Netflix revival episodes dropping timing is, but I hope that we can finish the first seven years of Gilmore, do Bunhead, and then finish it with with the with the Netflix revival episodes in whatever format we do those in, because. It would be such a bummer to, for the last episode of a podcast that we do together to be, and then Bunhead ended, and it's kind of a cliffhanger emotionally at the end. Goodbye. <laughs> that would be such a bummer. So it'd be nice to end on like a, a note of finality and closure. So will you guys keep working together? Do you think after you're done? No, I plan. No, this is it. I plan on deleting Demi from my phone. Right after the last episode of our show is recorded. I didn't ever say it's Kevin in mine, so. <laughs> so you don't have anything to delete. No, I'm a free uh, agent. Yeah, I mean, if we, sincerely though, if we do something together after this, it probably will not be a podcast. 
this will probably mark the end of our podcast relationship as far as that goes. Just because this has taken, this has been so, you know, doing two episodes a week for the last almost two years has been so intense and wonderful, but it's been like a lot. And I think with the the ways our careers are going and, and different stuff and other work and other jobs, it'd be hard to maintain that on the regular after this show. We're committed to doing it right now because it, it would just be such a missed opportunity to not keep doing it in the midst of all this like Gilmore phenomenon with the revival and all that stuff. But I think after, after Buttonheads and Gilmore on Netflix and all that stuff, I'll probably mark the end for now and for the foreseeable future of our, uh, of our podcast uh, co-hosting. I think you just broke a lot of hearts. Oh, I can hear them all across the country. I mean, we're yeah. just, all we're, the people we're, listening in the studio with just me. <laughs> oh boy! I mean, the I mean, the good news is that it's gonna be it's like a good breakup. You know what I mean? Like it's not like we're not friends anymore. Or we hate each other, or we're not gonna, you know, work on stuff together. Otherwise, it's just in this particular context. I just have one more question for you guys because I know you've both got to do other things. Where do you guys find the art in podcasting? Ooh, that's a good question. The art in podcasting. What do you think, Demi? Uh, hmm. I think the art in podcasting is sort of the weird social aspect it brings out despite being, by definition, the least social form of media in that it's just often people talking in a room and then cutting it and sort of controlling what is released about it and then putting it out there. It's literally less live than radio, but there's an art to it because by nature of it being on the internet, it becomes so accessible and easy for anyone to do, which means it becomes easy and accessible for anyone to listen to. So I think it's just, it's like community radio in that aspect. Uh, I think the art of podcasts in general is just the sort of same as the art of painting, where it used to be a kind of thing that, you know, was considered a high art and was like for the upper class and whatnot, but then it became accessible to a medium where everyone can do it. And, you know, now painting is taught in classes and school and children do it all the time and it's considered impressive. And that's us. We're the children in the scenario. But uh, I think that with radio sort of being the original form of podcast and having that sort of barrier to it where it's like you can only do it if you have a network or you get in line with someone like that, the art of podcasting now means that anyone can take that medium and run with it. Uh, I think it's the art of a lot of things in this age, you know, how television sort of became just anyone creating short form content on YouTube and how, um, you know, just writing in general became, you know, start tweeting or write a blog or something like that. I think the biggest art of podcast is how it's become more accessible to an audience in both the way we consume it and the way we make it. Yeah, I think there's a real populist uh, angle to the medium, too, where there's, you know, virtually no gatekeepers at all. No one has to say yes to you starting a podcast and making it whatever you want it to be. And it's very easy to upload it to iTunes, to SoundCloud, and making it exactly the, the amount of control and the freedom that you have in the media means there's, like, endless possibilities. And this is a very specific form of it, like Gilmore Guys, a television recap podcast 
is not like a, oh, what a novel idea. Like, there's a billion. There's literally a billion of them. Mm-hmm. What we hope would stand, make our stand apart is the amount of care and craft that we put into, you know, each component of the show. But in general, I think the big great thing about podcasting is it is a huge blank canvas that that is, like Demi said, like uh, akin to something like YouTube or Twitter where you can build the audience. You don't need someone to say, I'll build you an audience. You don't need someone to say yes to you until you can do the thing. You can do the thing tomorrow. In our setup, like we don't have any resources that wouldn't be afforded to any to most or I should say to like most people. Like our our tech setup is very minimal and fairly cheap. Like everything's everything we've ever bought for the show tech wise has been like total under seven hundred dollars total or like under eight hundred dollars total. So it's not like, oh, you need the very best equipment to make it sound blah blah blah. Like you can make a really great sounding podcast for very cheap. So, so yeah, I think that's it. It's just like the uh, accessibility of the medium and that it's free. I think it's very important and it makes it feel, it makes people feel really connected to it because it really, it, it does oftentimes feel like by the people for the people. Thank you to Kevin and Demi. Hear them every week on the Gilmore Guys podcast. Also, thanks to the crew at Talia Hall. You can see some of our photos of the live show Gilmore Guys event on our website. As always, thank you to WGN Radio, Hard Times Productions, and Tim Apuli. Find more artistic license on WGN Plus and at artisticlicensepodcast.com. Also, be sure to look us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Rachel Woodall. Until next time, thanks for listening.